a guy from from uh, up north who comes to the big city, who comes to Stockholm to to visit, and they're standing on the cliffs at uh, at Södermalm, looking out over the islands with the city on it, and like yeah, and uh, his Stockholm friend is like, <laughs> have a look, like isn't it beautiful? And he says, yeah, it's beautiful. It's a pity they built a city here though. Welcome to Here There Be Dragons. This season, I'm taking you to Stockholm. I'm your host, Jess Myers. Episode 10, Nature. And goodbye. All the different species sort of do little jobs for us. The whole uh, archipelago uh, with lots of different um, environments on the islands over there. Almost rural in one way. Certain kind of wild quality to it. But they're still very much connected to Stockholm. Although it's completely tamed. Urban environments really entwined with uh, natural habitat. And there's so many things about nature that, I mean, it's the place where Swedes relax. It's where they go to the... Skinny dipping in the winter. To report this season, I spent November, December, and January of 2019 in Stockholm. Three months of damp darkness with only a few hours of daylight and even fewer of sunshine. Yet, despite the bleak winter days, the park on the banks of Södermalm near my apartment was never empty. People went on walks, grabbed coffee, brushed the snow off of benches, and chatted. During the weekends, friends took me on hikes with their kids. In my city, New York, it's known for its skyline more than its outdoor offerings, but there is Central Park and my neighborhood's spot, Prospect Park in Brooklyn. You can have some access to nature, but within some very specific and defined parameters. To get out of the city and onto wilder trails is more of a trek. In Stockholm, nature seemed to appear out of nowhere, intertwined with the city fabric. Even neighborhoods that were constantly stereotyped as dangerous had some pretty stunning views. How has Stockholm grown, and keeps growing, with natural spaces in mind? That's what we'll be digging into this episode. To me, strolling on a dirt path along the banks of Lake Malloran, just around the corner from my apartment, was very exotic. But as I talked to Stockholmers, I quickly realized that to some locals, these paths barely even register as nature. For me, just... Especially the worst thing about living at Södermalm was as soon as I stepped out of the door, I was in the city. There was no transition period. But many Stockholmers I met agree that nature is abundant in the city. It bursts out of unexpected corners. A trip on the subway can quickly turn from city squares to forest views. Of course, the geography of the city itself lends itself to this. If you look at a map, Stockholm is where Lake Malaren, Sweden's third largest lake, merges with the Baltic Sea. And the city as a whole is more like a myriad of little and not-so-little islands. 
Water represents 30% of the urban landscape, and parks and green spaces, well, that's another 30%. And that definitely makes Stockholm stand out. Even in the most urban areas, there's still nature if you know where to look, even though it's, it can be quite difficult. I think Stockholm has a, like, like a proper forest, and you can have trees that have been lying there for some time you know, without being removed or you know, brought into the paper industry or whatever. So you still have uh, these really old forests. I mean, and that's, that's something that's unique for Stockholm, I guess. In other cities, when they're sprawling out, a lot of these areas get, you know, they, there's no place for them. I mean, the cities have to grow. But in Stockholm, we have preserved quite a lot of them. And some of them are out on islands. You have Årsta Holmar, which is just here between Årsta and Södermalm over here, which are two islands that have just been made into a, a reserve, a nature reserve. And if you go there, it's, you also get a pretty in, amazing kick out of it because it is like proper nature and it's it's you know you know as you can see on the map it's just in between a lot of pretty urban areas so there are some refuge places for animals to thrive and so i would say i mean i think it's more accessible i think stockholm people in stockholm have if they want to experience nature they have a better opportunity than other cities I love the, the contrast where you have um, urban environments really entwined with uh, natural habitats. And, and that's really something um, that Stockholm has a lot of. It's uh, in, in a big part thanks to you know, the geography and, and um, that we have uh, Lake Mälaren going through the city. And also you know, we have quite a lot of, of uh, natural areas preserved especially around the, the little tiny lakes around the city as well. Uh, the forest there was, that I was in, in uh, this day was uh, Tyrsta. It's called uh, just south of here. It's a national park that has a really old uh, forest that uh, has almost no... Uh, there's almost none of those forests that south in, in Sweden. We have them up in north. Uh, so that's a really impressive area. And uh, we also have the whole uh, archipelago uh, with lots of different um, environments on the islands over there. And there's a lot of like bird lakes and a lot of small forest areas in really close to the uh, city center. And there's also a lot of uh, nice uh, fields and uh, like more open areas. And we also have this um, Nationalstadsparken, uh, that's a national city park. And I think it was the first in, in the whole world here in Stockholm. That's a really uh, important uh, green area in the center of Stockholm. That's one thing that's good about Stockholm is, I guess, is you don't have to go very far to find areas like that, which are almost rural in one way, but they're still very much connected to Stockholm. It's, that's pretty unique. So for me, it's, I guess, um, being out there really shaped my view. And I, I, I think I appreciate that being able to live in that world and then world and then coming back to Stockholm in the city, then you, you can sort of take a lot more once you, if you have that like uh, relaxing countryside uh, rhythm to go back to. The westernmost part of the city is even known as the archipelago, or archipelago. It's mostly fishermen and country houses for more privileged Stockholmers, but some people live there year-round. The Stockholm archipelago is 30,000 islands. And then there's more if you continue up and down, but... The part of the archipelago that's closest to Stockholm is 
inhabited all year round. But then like a vast number of islands is not, if you want to try to live there all year round, you have to, you will have to use helicopter service. Because you know, when it, you know, the boats doesn't go all year round because of the ice and stuff. Um, so it's, it's, uh, that's also something that fascinates me anyway. That you that you can be quite close to the inner city of Stockholm in a way, but you can be completely be very far from civilization in a way. But most of the green spaces are tucked into the city itself. I live next to a golf course. Uh, it's also a really nice uh, bay. There's lots of forest areas. I go for long walks, like two hours, three hours, and. I don't like walk around in pavements, in buildings. It feels too depressing. So if I'm walking, I like to walk in nature. And like in Kharholmen, there's a really big uh, a nature reserve there. So when I'm walking, I walk there because I think it's really, I mean, I feel more at peace and you get rejuvenated. To Gustav, it's even what makes Stockholm a little bit more interesting. So in a bigger city, you would have constantly new areas to explore. Endless, if you talk about London. In um, Stockholm, you don't have endless. Like, you, wa- you walk around in the center part of Stockholm for like eight months, if you do it diligently and you have a lot of time, like I did. Then you, then you realize pretty soon, ah, that's it. It's a disappointing moment, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, so after that, what you can do is you can continue uh, discovering uh, the kind of wild wildness around the city, which is also very exciting, but in a different different way, I guess. So I don't know if the access to the nature is in particular important, but uh, the access to something uh, to explore is important, I guess. But there's a culture of nature that's ingrained from a very young age. It's even taught in schools. So in school, orienteering is that you walk around with a map uh, in a forest and then you have to find like different uh, checkpoints and you find the different checkpoints on the map. And that's how you learn to navigate both with a map and like how to understand elevation and and all of this. So we do that in school to learn how to navigate. I don't know what it's like today when we have GPS and stuff, but but as a kid, that was part of our school. And uh, and you get like a broader sense of, of nature. You know, like we would go with the the um, after-school programs uh, to go into the woods, get, you know, um, mushrooms or blueberries, pick mushrooms and blueberries, things like that. And I am i can't talk about, like, every s- suburb kid's uh, experience, but my experience growing up was very, very close to nature. And, you know, like, in the winter, we have hills where we go sledding. Stockholm is the first city I've lived in where leisure in nature has the same amount of weight as other urban activities. It's nothing to residents to get out of work and hit the forest. 
We did all the things that most like typical middle class Swedes do. I mean, we went skiing, we went out sailing, and I mean, there's like this program that you should do as a Swedish ordinary normal citizen, sort of like yeah. So I, I mean, we did all those things, and 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 with that comes the package of of, of nature. I would say. The sauna culture here is very special to me, and there's a sauna on on the water. It's this floating sauna that um, is next to my home. Uh, so it's called Tanto Bastu, uh, and there you can go as yeah, just like member of the public to just go there. And then there's pr- like particular evenings or times during the day where you can just go and you pay like. 25 crowns during the day or 50 crowns in the evening and then you just get to sweat in this like wooden cabin and then you take a dip in the water you just like jump in the water and just kind of get this shock of coldness that just cools you down so yeah for me that is a a particular spot to me and it's a good way also to um, lower the stress level Um, so that is sometimes much needed and and so for me it does have um, a particular kind of shining spot in in my heart because the summer is everything here <laughs> it really is also the time where it opens up in a way that you don't see it open up it becomes vibrant alive it becomes a matter of like that's when you know like you okay this is a moment of three months barely two (laughs) sometimes that we could experience this certain you know just having not to be cold all the time and it opens up the city so much in terms of where people hang out changes that it's more open it's more acceptable to like you know for like I think a lot of people from the suburbs come to town more in the summer to take part in certain things and because Stockholm has this beautiful you know it's nature it's beaches it's lakes and it's you know everywhere you go is packed with people and you you kind of feel like wow we do share the city that those brief moments of encounters you know we do share the city this is beautiful Integrating nature into the daily fabric of their lives was something that was almost second nature to Swedes. But it was a surprise to Anas, who comes from Morocco by way of Paris. And for someone who was living in the city all his life, and especially uh, relying on taking transportation or being very close to, to there, walking in the nature to go to school was really something very strange and new for me. <laughs> At first, Anas found nature's integration into city life. A little bit weird. Being someone who lived in Paris, you always have nice shoes on you, nice clothes on you, etc. So it was kind of weird to walk with these nice clothes and then end up somewhere uh, with mud, for example. And then uh, because, you know, we were walking to the university. It's not that I'm going to do sports or go to the gym. So this was what was weird, like how you would adapt your clothing and your ways of uh, of going to the university. So, for example, what people were doing is that they would put some big 
shoes adapted for this weather and then have their nice shoes in the bag and then put them while they arrive to the university or to work. So this was what was what felt weird for me. How how combine this nice looking aspect with still walking in areas that are like the jungle. <laughs> I mean not not don't not jungle in a bad way, but uh, in safety matters, no, there was no issue at all, and I was always feeling very safe and comfortable walking there. Most residents described feeling particularly safe in these areas, especially in the summertime, when days were at their longest and when the city comes to life for a few short months. But nature always has an edge to it that lends itself to the imagination. Even when well integrated into the city fabric, its emptiness and darkness can feel isolated and dangerous. Stockholmers, and especially women, often conveyed this dual relationship to these spaces. I would say more maybe places where there were a lot of people. Uh, we would always try to focus on parks more than forests because you have you're in like in in the nature, surrounded by nature, but still with other people. Mm, so that was when I felt most safe when there was a lot of people around. In the summer, I feel completely safe because it's much brighter and it's bright pretty much all night. There's just few dim hours uh, between. I don't know, one and four in the morning. And then apart from that, it's, it's pretty much bright. So you have a sense that it's still daytime, basically. Um, so it, it does definitely contribute to my sense of safety. But then on the other hand, uh, when comes the winter, which is much darker um, than the sense of discomfort uh, is much more present. Uh, but you do see the city occupied as well. Even though it's four in the evening, it's pitch black, you do still see a lot of people. So it's a reminder that, that it's not that late yet. Um, but yeah, this kind of buzzing feeling in your stomach, you do you do get it maybe a bit more actually in the winter than summer. I never experienced that sense of discomfort. The isolated, dense green spaces can trigger a sense of vulnerability in some people, and in particular in older women and women of color. Jacqueline was often aware of what or who might be lurking in the shadows. Green spaces or larger parks or parks that do feel quite kind of keeping a certain kind of wild quality to it, although it's completely tamed through urban planning. Um, for me, kind of always had a dark corner that I could envision someone hiding, like behind a tree or a rock, um, a hill, or it has so much potential for different crime scenes to happen. And then those would often be the spaces where my imagination would just go wild in terms of being a woman, a woman of color, uh, moving into these spaces. So... You would have park uh, on Södermalm. You would have, for example, Tanto. Uh, you would also have this um, kind of pedestrian space uh, along the water that uh, in the evening would sometimes make me feel uncomfortable. But a lot of joggers actually use it as their evening jogging route as well. So you're, you're never completely alone. There's these moments of your... You have the sense that you're completely alone in darkness, but then quickly you just see a jogger passing by and it's like, oh, okay, good. In the evening, there's this really steep hill that I need to kind of bike over that I'm never able to fully bike all the way to the top to reach the bridge 
over to cross the water over to our place. So I always halfway on the hill need to get off my bike and walk with my bike in order to reach the bridge. And that particular spot, which is in the middle of the kind of forest-like kind of part in the evening, just kind of somehow freaks me out with the idea that it's such a an ideal murder scene that could happen there or whatever kind of horror scene that potentially could happen. But I think it's very kind of gender-informed as well. Um, I would be surprised that uh, other type of bodies experience the way that I experience that particular kind of hill that doesn't allow me to bike all the way to the top in, in one go and forces me to get off the bike and walk with my bike. That makes me feel just very vulnerable in that particular moment. Earlier I was taking the bicycle very much, but I... I lost my, it was stolen my <laughs> bicycle two years ago, so I, I don't buy a new one. And uh, when you were bicycling those, I, I was getting into town uh, this way. And um, it happened for me that I was accidents with people running on me or open the doors of the <laughs> so so it was unsafe to to make bicycling in, in, in this area. So I don't do it anymore. Faktiskt jag vet inte riktigt, men jag bara tänker så att platser där det var väldigt öde, liksom inte så mycket folk alls. Det kanske det tycker jag är mer obehagligt än, än där det är mycket folk liksom. Det är det enda jag kommer på. Men vilka vilka sådana platser kan du ha varit på? Ja, jag vet inte riktigt faktiskt. Men det kan vara till exempel en skogsväg där jag bor. Där det är inget folk, helt ensamt. Då kan jag tycka det är lite mer läskigt. Eller jag vet inte, någonstans lite bakom sådär in i stan. Där det nästan inte är några människor. Men mer kanske faktiskt ute på... Så här, där jag bor att om det är helt ensamt liksom, man möter ingen och så tycker jag det är lite mer läskigt uh, I've been robbed once I was going to the tube there is a tube station in the park here and um, it, was, it was not late in the evening but it was in the evening and uh, uh, there was one man coming from back into my uh, backpack and um, pushing me <laughs> to the ground and taking my, my all these things with <laughs> money and telephone and things like that and run away with this so so I feel unsafe <laughs> in this because it's a park and it was not uh, many people there and I, I I could see this is a place where you, anything could happen So I, I, I don't like to go that way, <laughs> but it's near to my, to the tube. So. The fears triggered by natural spaces aren't that different from those triggered by urban spaces. A general sense of vulnerability or the feeling that spaces just aren't quite designed to accommodate you can be overwhelming. 
But this integration of greenery is there by design. Keeping natural spaces has also been a part of city policy, even as it was urbanizing in the 1950s and 60s. Remember the Millions program, these little beads strung along the metro lines? Well, in between them are park spaces. And if today those can feel a bit isolating, it was initially thought of as an asset. The million programs in, in Stockholm, there's a lot of them that are really close to, to great nature reserves. So um, in that way, I think that Stockholm is quite um, equal, uh, you can say. Uh, there's a lot of nature reserves for, for almost all areas that are, people are living in. Of course, Stockholm faces challenges as a growing city, especially with a housing crisis that constantly pushes for the construction of more units. Yet, in the last few years, Eric has noticed that Stockholmers have been really good at organizing to protect the environment from urbanization. That nature culture that was fostered in schools and through activities has really resonated with local concerns for wildlife and the threat of climate change. I wrote a book about uh, Stockholm nature with two friends uh, that came out last year, and we uh, talk a lot about uh, 27 different places and also mention like 100 uh, other places. And I would say that almost all of the places we mentioned in the book has been close to being exploited in some way. And, and they are still under threat from, from buildings, but a lot of them are now nature reserves. There are so many people living close to these nature reserves, so a lot of people have some kind of connection to them. And I think that's really important, because if you, it can be as easy as learning what the area is called. And when you know, uh, it's called like Nakarasvatat, and if you read about Nakarasvatat in the newspaper, and you learn that there are some kind of building plans, uh, that could be enough for you to like want to protest and want to keep this uh, as a protected or nature reserve area. That's something that's that's really, I think, really important in, in Stockholm. Uh, I guess, what kind of pushback do mm. people do to ensure that these developments don't move forward? And also, what kind of developments do you feel pose the greatest threat to these areas? They're starting a lot of like Facebook groups about a specific area, and then there a lot of people are helping each other out with like contacting politicians and contacting media and uh, organizing different protests. And I think that a lot of Stockholmers who are into nature has become really good at that. Uh, it's also an important. Um, way to protect an area is to look for what kind of species are living in the area. So if there are like protected species there or there are some species that's not very common or uh, it's there's a bigger chance to, to save that area. Uh, so I think that people in Stockholm has become really good at that uh, and also there's a lot of people living here and a lot of them are interested in, in nature. So I think that's a uh, big thing for protecting nature and when it comes to uh, the threats to the different areas I'd say that it's mostly about building housings for, for, for people to live in since that's um, I mean there's a lot of people moving into Stockholm so I mean there's a big we have to build more houses and it's a question about where to build them and um, I think that most people are into nature uh, knows and understands that we need to build more houses but 
I also think that people should listen to people who really knows about nature and uh, listen to their views on where not to build because there's a lot of interesting uh, species that are living in, in Stockholm that uh, needs to be protected. Today, the city has other ways of designing nature into its city planning. Cities don't usually think of other species as they expand. They're built around humans and their needs. Yet, can urbanization be an interspecies project? I spoke to Oliver and Vide, who work with the city of Stockholm to protect wildlife and, in particular, lizards and frogs. The city had a project around, I think it was 2007, where they built I think it was 12 ponds around the city. We went around sort of inspecting the ponds and and we did have some stuff to complain about and we had some notes. But instead of, of going in with um, like a negative attitude, we gave them prize, like the yearly herpetological prize for, for good herpetological deeds. So they were happy about that. And so we got more money for constructing more ponds in Skärholmen, we've been working, making uh, small ponds, you know, for frogs and newts and salamanders, which is one way to get people to appreciate these animals. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, that was a pretty huge part of me growing up, going, being able to go to a pond or a lake and, you know, fish up frogs, just put them in a small aquarium and watch them and then release them. And being able to do that... For a, for a kid, that I feel like that's an important part. If you grow up in a city without any connection to nature, that's a pretty huge loss. And uh, in Skärholmen, for example, we've been doing, we've been actually adding these small ponds all over this map. So we have 30, 40 ponds that have been made. And most of them, they sustain themselves, basically. If you, if you dig a hole and you have water, the water doesn't drain. If it's there all year round, you will get all kinds of you know, wildlife. You get insects and you get frogs. You have birds coming there to feed. So it it does bring a lot of animals to the people of Stockholm instead of bringing them out into nature. We rely on natural habitats for lots of different ecosystem services like cleaning the water and purifying the air and just sustaining biodiversity and all the different species sort of do little jobs for us and for themselves as well, of course. But I mean... We have all these reasons, like, um, well, just the term ecosystem services was sort of made up from uh, an idea that we should calculate the economic value of, of nature and how it benefits the human society. And there's a lot of um, truth in that, and that's a great motivation. But for me personally, it's it's more about these, like I said before, the feelings of interest and, and fascination and like relaxation or flow state that you can get into while in in nature.
It's rare to think of a city as an interspecies project. City planning predominantly centers the comfort and ease of people, property, and cars. Stockholm faces challenges as a growing city, especially with a housing crisis that consistently pushes for the construction of more units. Yet, more and more, Stockholmers are beginning to challenge the idea that expansion is the solution, rather than reinvesting in maintenance and public over private housing. You may have heard of Greta Thunberg. Alongside local organizing, her weekly strikes have pulled attention to the city's needs to develop for a sustainable urban future. For me, Stockholm was a treasure. To leave my studio and get a little lost in nature was a delight. It's been over a year since I left the city, and I will always remember it for that particular wonder. This is our last episode of the season, and to wrap things up, I'd like to answer some questions that listeners sent us throughout the season. One that comes from a debate that we had internally on the HTBD team is around our coverage, or let's say non-coverage, of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, we recorded our interviews with residents in 2019 and left Stockholm just weeks before lockdowns started throughout the world. Now, I think that Stockholm and Sweden in general's approach to the coronavirus really demands some attention, especially in its treatment of older city residents and immunocompromised residents. But that reporting is something that you can find on sites like The Local, which I think did some really interesting reporting, if you are an English speaker. Um, But we did think about that very deeply as we were building the season in our own lockdowns. Hello from my closet to yours, Jess. I have a couple questions that are about the evolution, I guess, of the podcast as an entity over the past several seasons. And the first one is how the production, the organization, the maybe even the funding structure of the podcast has impacted the storytelling from season to season? I think this is a great question, and you can hear it in the evolution of the three seasons. So if you go back and you listen to season one on New York, this is where the podcast is really at its scrappiest. Um, Me learning, uh, learning editing software on my own and kind of having a very limited knowledge of how to get good field recordings and things like this. So I like to leave that season the way that it is so that people can just see what it sounds like to sort of gain support or gain funding to be able to pursue um, more and more of the ideas. So the way that storytelling has changed over the course of the three seasons is that the main conceit of the show has remained the same, but how we're able to approach and really pull listeners into our stories has gotten so much more varied and diverse. This season, very much thanks to to Adrian for bringing her sound design background in so that we can really lay a kind of soundscape in terms of music and the sounds of the subway or the sounds of nature that I hope you, you know, 
heard in this episode, um, we can really bring that in because we've had the support of the Graham Foundation um, for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts, and we've had the support of Konstantin the Swedish Arts Grants Committee. And what that support really does is allows us to, to push even further into different types of techniques and storytelling where we can serve the voices of residents who spoke to us on just a platter of more... Um, elaborate and illuminating sound design. So I would say that that's how how the seasons have changed over the course. And the second question that I have is more about how contemporary events and um, and how life itself, especially in the pandemic, has impacted the storytelling. There's a certain urgency to each of the stories that you're telling, but you're also not telling them immediately as they happen. There's a, a bit of a delay that is built into the podcast setup. And so I'm I'm curious to hear how your life as you're living it impacts the the stories that you're recalling and telling through the interviews that you have completed several months prior. To talk about the urgency of stories, especially since we usually do a chunk of field work and it takes us about a year to produce the show, to produce the, a season, we don't set ourselves up as an of-the-minute sort of um, daily news show. A lot of the stories that we focus on are things that have to do with very long-term forms of history and policy and uh, socio-political structures that are in place in the cities that we're interested in. So it's not necessarily that we need to have a kind of 24-7 news cycle approach to the stories that we're telling because we're trying to embed them in a very long history. So the urgency, I would say there's definitely an urgency to learn about these stories and to sort of frame the understanding of security and safety differently. I think that's very urgent is that we, we think about our our own narratives of security and safety in a different way. But it doesn't necessarily need to be that it's always from kind of snatched from the headlines news reporting. We really want to cite that in people's long-term lived experience. So, you know, even though the coronavirus did happen, um, like after we got the tape, as we talked about, we made the decision that, you know, the show is kind of about the long-term experiences of residents. And at that time, they hadn't experienced the coronavirus pandemic yet. So we really couldn't report to it. So what we did in that case was just report to the stories that we had um, and frame those in the way that we, we usually do for the season, which is in uh, sort of a historical policy-based and sort of socio and political way. So I hope that that answers uh, your questions. And if you guys have other questions, please feel free to like reach out to us on social media or uh, on our Gmail account, which is htbdpodcast at gmail.com. We're happy to, to take your questions. And even though this is the end, the last episode of the season, maybe they'll appear in the next season. So um, thank you for, for your questions. And, um, you know, we're really, really always very happy and lucky to, to hear from listeners. This season, we've had the pleasure of getting familiar with Stockholm, Sweden. We witnessed Stockholmers contending with what of the city was and was not accessible to them, from housing to club scenes to train stations. We'd really like to thank 
every single interviewee on the season for giving us their time and their perspectives. These interviews were the last that we did in person before the pandemic, but we got to spend lockdown getting to better understand these voices, and for that, we are profoundly grateful. So, for the last time this season, we are produced with the generous support of the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts and Konstnach Namden, the Swedish Arts Grants Committee. Thank you to our senior producer, Adelie Pajran-Ponte, and to our team of graduate assistants from the Architecture Department at the Rhode Island School of Design. Kimberly Ayala Nahera. Belal Ismail Ahmad. Daniel Guerrero. Uthman Aloa. Fatu Kamara consults for the show, Corey Jacobs does the music, and Adrian Lilly is our sound designer. A special thank you to our Patreon supporters, Patricia, Brandon, Anne, Arvid, Jim, Blake, and Joey. If you're interested in this season's mini-episodes on everything from ethnography to drug policy to fish traffic, you can now access them as a bundle on our Patreon. Check it out in the show notes. We're at dragons underscore podcast or check out our website and newsletter, all full of fun content like readings, maps, and videos. Like, the beach is packed. Did I say the beach? <laughs> like, the beach. <laughs>